0: The song we have just sung summarizes beautifully uh, the message we have been working through uh, in the book of Romans, understanding what it means to be justified by faith uh, before the throne of God. Before we jump into the message this morning, uh, I just want to say welcome to our dear friend Nathan Wallace. Nathan, we're so glad you're here with us. Welcome from Kentucky and uh, greet your family for us. We're glad you're here. And also this morning, we have a family from Portland who just moved five days ago, uh, Romanian friends, uh, Marius and Claudia, and their four daughters. Welcome, we're glad you all are here. And we pray that God's spirit would edify you and bless you as as you follow him. I don't know if your experience is anything like mine, but whenever I go to uh, a doctor, uh, the doctor for a yearly checkup, uh, shortly after the visit... I get in the mail a little letter, not from the doctor's office with a bill, but from the insurance. And usually, it's a document that always has a title, Explanation of Benefits. It's the insurance's way of reminding me of how many benefits we have or I have when I go to the doctor and they're covering part of the cost and so they remind me of the benefits of being insured by that company. Uh, but it always happens that their benefits are never in full. There's always something else that I have to do and therefore the benefits that I get from the insurance company are always partial. What I want to talk to you about today It's about a different explanation of benefits. And it's an explanation of benefits of what it means to be justified by faith. And what I want to tell you from the get go is that the benefits of being justified by faith are in full, it's a full, absolutely full coverage. And in order to understand what are the benefits of being justified by faith, which is a topic we have been looking at uh, in the book of Romans, would you open God's word to Romans chapter 5? We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. If you're new to our congregation, we are working our way through the book of Romans, taking one section at a time we have covered so far chapters one, two, three, and 4. If you're interested to know what that has been like, you're welcome to listen online to the sermon archives. Uh, but here this morning, as we are making our way through this book, uh, let's hear God's Word and hear a list of the benefits of what it means to be justified by faith. This is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. This is the word of God for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching and the hearing of this word. Gracious Father, you have given us your only Son so that through him we might be declared righteous in your sight, though we have done no good thing. Father, we pray that this word we have just read, that your Spirit would open it for us. Father, I pray for the preaching of your word this morning, that you would help me preach it with clarity and conviction We pray that the hearing of your word this morning, that our hearts would be opened by your spirit. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen. For the last two weeks that we've been in the book of Romans, uh, we have considered this amazing news of being justified uh, by faith alone. We have considered why this news of of hearing and and getting the news of the righteousness of God being revealed by faith apart from the law, why that news is such a big deal. Because our guilt before God is dealt with in full. But you may wonder, what's the effect of that? What are the effects and the implications of being justified by faith? Is this doctrine of justification by faith alone just a a high doctrine for theologians? Yes, the Reformers have recaptured it in the Reformation. And we're looking ahead at a few weeks to celebrate the Reformation Day. While our world celebrates Halloween, we're going to celebrate Reformation Day. Is Is this doctrine of justification by faith alone only for those who are bookish uh, who like theology, who are right getting into studying the scriptures and getting into uh, deep studies. How does that, how does this doctrine supposed to affect me and you? I wonder if hearing the news that sinners justified by faith leaves you dry. Okay, I get it, but it has little experiential reality for you, leaving you feeling, so why does that matter? Is anything different now for sinners who are justified by faith? Starting with chapter 5, Paul is making a major shift in the book of Romans, and uh, he's seeking to explore the benefits and the effects of being justified by faith. And this new section that Paul starts in chapter 5 will go on all the way to chapter 8 where Paul, or throughout this section, long section, Paul is describing the experience of the Christian life. In this text, Paul is seeking to convince us that being justified by faith brings us great privileges. If you are a Christian... I trust that this message will warm your heart to assure you of what God has done for you and I once we're justified by faith. And if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting with us or perhaps you've been growing in this church as a child, as a teenager, uh, but you have not yet experienced the grace of God in a saving way, I hope that you would consider the impact that the Christian faith has on our lives not just in our minds, not just in our head knowledge, but in our experiential knowledge as a Christian. Ask yourself, if you are in this latter category of not being a Christian, ask yourself, is there something else in this world that would offer similar or better benefits? So let's get into this text and see what are the benefits of being justified by faith. Well, there's many benefits beyond what this text will describe for us. But in this text, we will look at three benefits of being justified by faith. And if you like taking notes, let me summarize them for you, and then we'll work our way through it. The first benefit is peace with God. Peace with God. The second benefit is the hope for the glory of God. The hope for the glory of God. And the third benefit is rejoicing in God. Rejoicing in God. Peace, hope, and joy. Let's look at each of these. Paul says in verse 1, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the notion of peace is so important for Paul as a first benefit of being justified by faith that he brings it up again throughout this text. As a matter of fact, he he brings it up again in verses 10 and 11 through the word reconciliation. It's a big word to be reconciled. Actually, this, this is how Paul ends our text in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now received reconciliation. This is one of the first benefits of being justified by faith. We now have peace with God. You know how difficult it is to be in circumstances and relationships where peace is lacking. I mean, we could go macro and consider the terrible hardships that the people of Ukraine are going through as they are at lack of peace with their neighboring country but let's bring it closer home. You know what it is to go to a workplace and have colleagues or even a boss that you're not in a good relationship with, that there's tension. Or perhaps you know what it feels like to be in a situation where there's lack of peace in the home. You come home and there's tension, even with the very people that you're supposed to love, and they're supposed to love you back. You know how difficult and painful it is to be sapped of energy because of the lack of peace that exists in relationships, even relationships with the closest ones. This text tells us that there is another lack of peace that prior to being justified by faith, we have experienced the lack of peace with the creator of the universe, with the maker, the one who made us, the one who sustains us, the one who has authority over all creation. And you know how amazing of a benefit it is when you have been in a tense relationship with someone that you love or someone that's close to you and when, when the tension is resolved, when things are being back to normal, when things are in a harmonious relationship. And if you know the joy of experiencing that peace with someone close, we get a sense of what it could be to experience peace with God again, freshly. It's a much bigger deal to be brought into peace with God, with the one who is the maker of the universe, the one who is uh, the judge of all creation. There are two important nuances. If we're going to understand what's the big deal about this peace with God, there are two things we must understand to appreciate the benefit of this peace. The first nuance is that we must recognize that the reason why we need to be at peace with God Is not so much that we are at war with him, but that he is at war with us. Do you remember Romans 1 18? After Paul concluded the introduction of of this letter, he introduced a big problem of of all humanity. That now the wrath of God has been revealed. ...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because mankind rebelled against our maker... ...we have caused God to reveal his wrath... ...against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness... ...and his wrath is stored up to a future day... ...as our text here today will bring it up again. So because we have rebelled against God... God is, has revealed a wrath that is ready to be unleashed at the end of the age. So that's why we are in need of, of getting back on peace terms with God. We need to be reconciled with God, not because we have a problem with God, but because God has a problem with us. God is opposed to all unrighteousness, and we are unrighteous. Unrighteous. God is opposed to all ungodliness, and we are ungodly. Therefore, because of our sin, there's no more peace between us and God. And it's not God's fault. But when we are justified by faith, the first benefit that we get is that this enmity between God and us is resolved. Instead of enmity, there's now a state of peace of safety in the presence of God having peace with God therefore is not about having some fuzzy feeling or some calm feeling about God it's about knowing that God encounters us on peace terms peacefully those who are not Christians are rarely bothered by their lack of peace with God have you noticed that This is why our feelings of peace with God are never a good measure of whether or not we're in the right relationship with God. We must assess our standing with God based on what he says in his word. And yet, when we hear the word of the gospel... This good news that Christians and Christianity proclaims, one of the first news, one of the first elements of the news of the gospel is that we are not on a right relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit awakens us to actually realize our guilt because of our rebellion before God. But the good news of the gospel doesn't stop merely with awakening us to the guilt we have before God. It also informs us of what God has done for us in Jesus to send him to die on a cross the death that we deserved and to give us the righteousness that we have lacked that we could never live on our own and then to be raised from the dead proving that he is indeed the son of God And anyone who would repent and trust in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf would be declared righteous in the sight of God. And the first benefit of that righteousness, of of being justified by faith, is that now the enmity that existed between us and God is dissolved. We are now at peace with God. We have peace with God. This is what changes when we place our trust in Jesus, that our Status of seeing God opposed to us has changed. But there's another clarification about this peace with God that we must say here. This reconciliation between us and God was made possible only through Jesus. This is what it says so clearly. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when people today need to make peace with one another, they will think through things like, let's make a peace treaty. Let's get together and negotiate our differences. Let's meet halfway somewhere. You give up some, I give up some, we'll meet halfway. Or they'll say, well, let's just work through our differences. What are our differences? Can we, can we get them resolved? And Friends, That is not how God brings this peace treaty with us. It's not by meeting us halfway, asking us to leave some and he'll leave some. It's not by working through our differences. Friends, in order for God to grant us his peace, to become at peace with us, he had to give everything he had to give the life of his only son, Jesus Christ. Because the only way to experience this true peace with the almighty God who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the only way to experience that peace is through a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Today, people think they can just make peace with God by being better, trying harder, making it better next time. Oh, friends, the only way for us to have peace with God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And and that is because he alone paid in full for the penalty of the crimes that we have committed. I wonder if you realize how big of a deal it is for any of us to be brought into a state of peace with the maker of the universe, knowing that the price tag was the very life of the only begotten Son of God. Oh friends, to be brought into a state of peace with a judge of all creation. To no longer be on the roster list of condemned sinners, but to be on the roster list of reconciled sinners. I wonder if it makes your, ju- your heart jump out at hearing this news. We now have peace with God. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not only that we have peace with God, there's a second benefit that the Apostle Paul wants us to get and see. It's introduced in verse two it's a hope for the glory of God. The hope for the glory of God. Paul says, through him, referring to Jesus, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And and we may ask, what is this grace in which we stand? It's the grace of being justified by faith. And then then he goes on to another benefit. At the end of verse 2, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friends, being justified by faith is not only about wiping us clean of our guilt and giving us peace with God. The benefit of being justified by faith The second benefit is having the hope of the glory of God. Or let me unpack that. Having the hope of beholding the glory of God. This is what Moses asked of God as soon as he got to the mountain. God, show me your glory. But what's a big difference here in the book of Romans is that we must understand chapter 5 as the solution to Romans 1.18. What do we deserve because of our sin, because of our ungodliness? We we deserve to be the object of of God's wrath. And yet here we get to hear that we will actually, we have reasons to hope, to, to behold the glory of God. Instead of facing the wrath of God, now sinners can hope for beholding the glory of God. What a different destiny. This hope, actually, of beholding the glory of God is the centerpiece of this entire text. Everything in the rest of this text, Paul will will try to tease out why everything we've experienced points us forward to this hope for the glory of God. God grants Christians a horizon to look forward to beyond the grave to behold the glory of God. This is the destiny of all those who have been justified by faith. This week we, we sent out an email among the many emails we send out to you. Uh, we sent out an email to pray for Miss Marilyn's sister, Joanna. She's been three weeks in the hospital, in the ICU, and she suffered while in the hospital a major stroke. Well, I got news last night from the Beemans that Joanna passed away peacefully. But before passing, she had been saying that she wanted to go. What gives Christians this desire that even in the face of death there's an eagerness to go because there's a hope for the glory of God because we know that death is not the end of joy. Death for the Christian is not the end of pleasures Death is merely the passage that ushers us into the promise of the glory of God. That's why Christians can look at death not as the end of our existence, but as a passage to look forward to experiencing finally the glory of God, no longer by by faith, but by sight. Well, friends, all this brings great rejoicing. And Paul will make the case in this text why we should be certain of this hope. This is what he's trying to argue in this passage. Christians, here are the reasons why you can be certain of this hope. How do we know this hope is certain? Well, he's going to tell us that this hope brings us rejoicing. Rejoicing. It brings rejoicing to the Christian, even in the here and now, while we are still looking ahead for that to come. And in the here and now, this rejoicing can happen even in the face of suffering. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What a strange thought. Why? Why do Christians, why can Christians rejoice in suffering? Look at what he says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now let me say this, not all people can rejoice in suffering. Actually, not all Christians rejoice in suffering. If, if you're a Christian this morning here and you hear this word and you feel like you've not been rejoicing in the suffering you've been enduring... I don't want you to feel guilty. There are times when even for Christians, suffering does not come with with a smile on the face. Actually, it doesn't come naturally to us, and we, we need to be okay with that. This is why this passage tells us reasons why we can rejoice, not necessarily that we will naturally rejoice. Why can we Why are we encouraged to consider knowing? And here's a a sequence of of logic that, that Paul gives us. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. What this means is that suffering forces you to practice endurance. You may not like it, but you're practicing endurance. And then endurance produces character. The word for character refers to the result of being tested. As one Bible put, uh, teacher put it, character refers to the strength that comes only from severe testing. That's the character that's being referenced here. It's not talking about the uh, character traits of, of us as individuals. It's the, it's the result of, of being, or the strength that comes from being tested and put to testing the result of that inner testing increases hope produces hope it comes back to the hope of seeing the glory of God in our suffering we are reminded and then this is how some of us are wondering how does how does the, the suffering produce hope because there are times and some of you feel like you are at the edge at the end of your power you feel like there's no more there's no more hope. If anything, it drives you to perhaps depression. I want you to understand that in the midst of suffering, we are reminded that life is not what it was meant to be. It is not what we had hoped it to be. Have you noticed how in suffering, there's something about wanting something else? You are being exercised even if you don't want to. to to practice a hope of something different, something better, something that you currently lack. Well, that hope is being practiced in you because you're reminded of how you do not want it to be like the way it is right now. But in our suffering, we long for something better. We long for something way more glorious than your current experience. And what gives Christians reasons for rejoicing in suffering is that it pushes you to look for that something more glorious. It refines you. It challenges you. It strips you away from the, the, the false hopes you had put your life in. A few months ago, we had the joy of having Ryan and Elizabeth Copus. Here in Austin, and some of us went for, uh, to visit with them. They are IMB missionaries in northern Iraq. We got the chance to hear their stories and hear about their ministries. And among a lot of details that they gave us, they made a statement that stuck with me. They talked about a number of challenges they had on the field, but they said that their challenges on the field caused their hearts to be reminded that their ultimate true home is not here. Heaven. Here's an example how the challenges of this present day can can encourage us, force us, even against our wills, to exercise a hope for something better. And when that is exercised, we're reminded that for us as Christians, that something better is not just the next season of this life; it's ultimately the next season of the age to come. Having the hope of the glory of God gives us something, gives us a fuel for enduring through suffering and pain. For those who are justified by faith, even our suffering now refines us and reminds us of a hope that is yet to come, the hope for the glory of God. But Paul gives us another reason why we can be certain for the For the hope of the glory of God. And the second reason for this certainty is the love of God. The love of God. Look at verse five. And this hope, the, the hope that our suffering and our testing pushes us towards, this hope does not put us to shame. This hope will not disqualify us. This hope will not disappoint us. Why? And there's a big because. And this points us to the the second reason. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This love of God is the other evidence why we can go to the bank and be certain that the hope Of the glory of God will not disappoint us. Now, this love of God that Paul references here is not referring to our love for God or even our love of God towards one another. The Spirit is pouring in us this love of God. And it's referring to the work of the Spirit causing our minds and hearts to taste and experience and see personally the love of God for us. You see, God not only gave us His Son through whom we are propitiated from the wrath of God, God also gave us the Holy Spirit to come inside of us. And when, the, and when God gives us the Spirit, His Spirit to come inside of us, He brings the love of God with him inside of us. And he pours it into us. So that now the love of God is not only a news we get to hear as if it's happening outside of us. But now we experience it and we taste it and we feel it. And we're convinced by it in our hearts. It's a Holy Spirit of God who convinces us of the love of God for us. what a different experience this is from the wrath of God. I want you to see these benefits always in contrast with Romans 1.18. The Spirit of God, instead of bringing the wrath of God that we deserve, the Spirit of God pours into our hearts, fills our hearts with the love of God so that we would be convinced of it. Sometimes people ask, why is it that When I share the gospel with with others, people just remain completely dead, completely lifeless, completely have no emotion, no, no response to the news of the gospel. Well, the answer is, because the Spirit of God has not been poured into their hearts. When the Spirit of God comes into the hearts of sinners, He convinces us not only of our guilt status and the need for Jesus, But he convinces us of the love of God for us in Jesus in such a way that our faith is awakened and enabled to grab onto Jesus by faith because we're convinced that God has loved us in Jesus. Oh, friends, the love of God for us in Jesus is described in an amazing way in verses six through eight. What is this love of God? Look at how Paul defines it. I'm, just, I'm going to read it quickly and make a few points about this love of God. Verse 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is um, one of the amazing places where the love of God for sinners is unpacked, is explained. And and there's a few things about us that Paul emphasizes in order to understand the love of God. Paul emphasizes that God loved us while we were unlovable. Unlovable. God took the initiative to show us his love when we had nothing in us deserving his love. Look at the three descriptions that Paul makes of us in this passage. Weak, ungodly, sinners. You've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Nothing could be further from the truth. We are not able to help ourselves. We are weak. Weak, unable. Christ died for us while we were still weak. And the description of humanity being ungodly and then sinners, these are are the descriptions of humanity in Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness we were ungodly. Against all unrighteousness, we are the sinners. Oh well, friends, the love of God is the antidote to the wrath of God. While God revealed His wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, He also, before He would unleash His wrath, He displayed His love by sending Christ to die for the ungodly, for the sinners. Oh, friends, God's love is not based on who deserves it. God's love is not based on who makes the first move. We haven't. We were too weak to make the first move. God's love is not based on who is worthy. We've been ungodly. God's love is not based on who deserves it. We are sinners deserving God's wrath. Oh, friends, God's love was displayed whilst we were still weak, ungodly, and sinners. I love how Doug Moo puts it beautifully. God has not waited for us to take the first step back to Him, but has intervened in an act of pure grace to provide a way for us to come back to Him. And friends, it's the Holy Spirit who convinces us of the love of God. Because all this display of the love of God, you can hear it. You can hear it explained. You can hear it argued by uh, an apologetics argument. It will, not, it will leave you empty and lifeless unless the Spirit of God comes inside of you as you hear this news and pours this love into your heart. That's why we are helpless. Even in the hearing of the word. This is why we pray before the sermon, God, would you work, would you enable me to preach this word, and would you enable us to hear it, because we are too weak to hear it on our own without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So because we taste the love of God through the Holy Spirit, we now have evidence that the hope of the glory of God is certain. Paul concludes his attempt to convince us that we can be certain of the future of the glory of God by by bringing two more summary arguments in verses 9 and 10. Look at how he summarizes his argument in verse 9 and then in verse 10. Paul says in verse 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Oh friends, this is the ultimate culmination of our salvation. Sometimes when we talk about salvation, we only talk about salvation in the past tense. God has saved us. But did you pick up the tense here in this this verse? How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? There is a dimension of the future aspect of our salvation. It's not just about conversion, It's about glorification as well. What started in conversion ends in glorification. So we must understand when we think about the experience of salvation, not only about getting saved as if getting converted, but also about the experience of being culminated in that salvation. And that culmination is escaping the future wrath of God, which up to now, God has only revealed. But a day will come when he will pour it out, as we see in the book of Revelation. And yet, because we have been justified by faith, we have confidence that we will be saved by him from that wrath. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not just the salvation from wrath. It's a salvation for the glory to come. Paul brings up again uh, the, the final claim he makes in verse 10. For while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Well, friends, Paul is making this argument, saying something like, if when we were still sinners God reconciled us, how much more now that we are reconciled, will he not finish the job and actually bring us into that moment of glorification? The argument is for helping believers hang on to the certainty of the future salvation and glory that God has in place for us. Paul wants Christians to know that in being justified by faith, we have a hope for the glory of God that will not disappoint us. And the ultimate evidence for that is the fact that we have seen and experienced the love of God for us. That's the primary evidence. And then he goes back and says, if you've experienced the love of God and you've been justified and now you are reconciled, be certain God will finish the job. He will do it. What difference does this make for you? Does does having the hope for the glory of God Change anything in the way you think about your life in the here and now. Consider some of the things you hope for in this life. What do you hope to accomplish? If you're single, perhaps you hope for the day when you will be married. If you are a college student or young adult and you're trying to find your, your, your track in life and society, perhaps you're hoping to land on that ideal job. Perhaps you're hoping for the day when you will have a family or a home or build up savings for retirement, especially now that inflation has messed with all those plans. What are the hopes that you are putting before you that you really hope to experience and get to? I wonder how many of us are putting our hope in the glory of God. I wonder if that hope, I wonder if that target helps you navigate through this life. Instead of just thinking about the next stage of life, the next accomplishment, the next thing you get to experience, I wonder if the hope for the glory of God is what actually helps you navigate through this life. Does it fill you with rejoicing? Do you have the certainty of that hope? Is that hope certain for you? Because this is what Paul would want to convince us through this text. As one pastor put it beautifully, Christians need constantly to remind one another to look to the cross in order to be certain of our standing before God and of our future with Him. Dear friends, our certainty for the assurance and the future of our salvation comes not by looking at ourselves, If we look to ourselves, we will be disappointed. Our feelings will go to and fro all over the map. But if we look to Christ, to His death and to His resurrection, if we look to Him by faith, believing and embracing that His death and His resurrection was for us, and enjoying the experience of the love of God that the Spirit of God brings to our hearts, we have peace with God. We have hope for the glory of God. Oh, friends, that is a much greater stable object of our hope to help us navigate to the shifting sands of our life. But Paul wants to close this explanation of benefits of justification by landing on another benefit, a third benefit, which actually he's been introducing all throughout, but he lands on it as a final benefit and that is rejoicing in God. Look at how this text ends in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The theme of rejoicing is repeated throughout this text, verse 2 and then verse 3. In all three instances where rejoicing is mentioned, Paul uses a word that he used earlier in this letter as a no-no for believers. And let me say what, what I mean by that. He used this word for rejoicing. Uh, it's, it's not the typical word for rejoicing. It's a word that is, al- is also meaning or means to boast. Boasting. Uh, Paul gave us an example in chapter 4 of how Abraham was justified not by works but by faith and Paul said in chapter 4 verse 2 if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about or he has something to rejoice about but not before God earlier in chapter 3 Paul said that when we understand that we are made right with God by faith in Jesus human boasting is excluded so how can now Paul Come to chapter 5, and now he says, now that we are justified, we finally get to boast. We finally get to rejoice. He's speaking about boasting and rejoicing because it's not in something we have done. We get to speak and boast and rejoice in God because of what he has done through Jesus. This is the meaning of the phrase, we rejoice in God through Jesus. We shout for joy because of what God has done. We boast in him. Justification by faith alone ought to affect our minds and our affections with this experience of boasting in God, rejoicing in him. And I want to ask you, is that your experience? Or is the doctrine of justification by faith alone just a dry doctrine collecting shelf on the mental shelf of your mind? Paul tells us, if when, you, when you and I understand justification by faith alone, we cannot but exalt, begin boasting, rejoicing. Well, friends, as Christians... We can rejoice and shout for joy because God has made the salvation experience possible. For you to be justified by faith, for you and I to have peace with God, for us to have hope for the glory of God, each of these benefits were obtained not by us, but by Christ. If you look back at each of these benefits, at every one of them, you'll see this qualification through Christ, by His blood by the Holy Spirit, none of the benefits have been a, a, a dealing between us and God. It was always done by Him entirely. Well, friends, that's why Christians, when we understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we say, yes, God did it. I cannot stop but be full of joy for the fact that God did it in entirety. Friends, what do you like boasting in? Parents love to boast in their kids. When our kids do something that just gets them to to be at the next level or something that was really hard to do, and and the kids do it, we parents love to boast in what our kids have done. Let me tell you a little secret. I love to boast about you, the members of this church. When I was in Romania and I just talking to friends and pastors and others there about God's grace among us, I get to boast about seeing God's grace in various members here in this congregation. And I get to boast in you. I love to do that. I think it's a good thing to do that. Paul does it in his letters as he boasts about various believers. But I want to ask you, who do you boast in? There are good things we can boast in. But then there are other things that are not necessarily so good to boast in. Here Paul tells us and gives us a reason why we must and could and should boast in God. He's done it. He's done it all. He brought these benefits in entirety to us. Even the Spirit applying these benefits to us, he did not leave it to ourselves to do it. He didn't say, here's my benefit, will you take it? Oh no, we would never take it if it was just an offer. That's why he pours his spirit on us. That's why through the preaching of the word, his spirit works without us realizing it and just brings us an awakening, a new life, new affections. We realize the love of God and we are, we are awed by it. It's the spirit of God who uses the word of God to bring the, the, the news about Jesus to our hearts. That's why, my friends, when we understand what God has done in justifying us by faith, we cannot stop. But rejoice, rejoice—not in our kids, although that's a good thing to rejoice in. Rejoice not in our in the good blessings the Lord gives us; though those those are good things to rejoice in as well. But rejoice in God. Can I ask you when was the last time you rejoiced in God? Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have done so much for us through your Son, Jesus. You were not content merely to declare us guiltless. You were not content merely to clean our legal record, but you brought reconciliation between you and us. And you also brought us the hope of glory. That we would experience that which Moses longed to see, that which the prophets have longed to see. And you have also brought us reasons for rejoicing in you. Father, as we continue our worship today, as we prepare our hearts to partake of the supper, to symbolically eat of the bread and fruit of the vine, representing the body and blood of the Lord, you have given us through your Holy Spirit so much when you have given us Christ. Cause our hearts to put our hope in you. Fill our hearts with your love so we may rejoice in you through Christ, our Redeemer. We pray all this, O Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and through the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit. Amen.